Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 181. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, dear listener, the topic is very near and dear to my heart. It's jiu-jitsu for old farts like me. And I have assembled a crack team of the best old farts in the entire jiu-jitsu community. Introducing first, I've got a, a legendary old fart, internet pioneer and decrepit old man, Stefan Kesting. Stefan, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm feeling very well and uh, not feeling super decrepit today, but that changes day by day, so I'm sure I'll get there tomorrow. <laughs> Awesome. And of course, one of my favorite guests and also one of my favorite decrepit guests as well, of course, Mr. Rob Bernacki from Island Top Team. How are you doing, Rob? I'm doing good. Why are we using this uh, unnecessarily formal vernacular here? Isn't it old fucks? Isn't that what we're going with? I'll go with whatever. This is. Are we not allowed to swear on this podcast all of a sudden? Have, have things changed? No, no, dude. You can swear as much as you want, but I just don't <laughs> like to be the person who does the escalation. I like to come in acting borderline professional and then just let my guests completely take over the show. But yeah, you are more than welcome to use whatever language is appropriate to describe the plight of the old person. And I guess the timely nature of this is that the two of you just released an instructional on this. Am I correct? Yes, the original working title was Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu to defeat the younger, more athletic opponent. Rob, of course, had the alternate title, uh, Jiu-Jitsu <laughs> for Old Farts, <laughs> except with a different word instead of farts. And I put it out to a poll, and it was, I thought it might be a little bit skewed one way, but 10 to 1. 10 to 1 <laughs> wanted Jiu-Jitsu for Old Fucks. It was a landslide in favor of Jiu-Jitsu for Old Fucks, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> When the people speak that loudly, you have to listen. I, although I have sold it now a bunch of times, and I have gotten a couple people who were quite surprised. You know, one email started, oh my, I think I misinterpreted the uh, the title. I thought it was Jiu-Jitsu for Old Farts. But he hasn't asked for a refund, so that's good. So They were so offended by what the F word stood for that they asked for a refund. Amazing. They did not ask for a refund. Not oh, okay, yet. okay, okay, okay. Uh, I'm sure it'll come. <laughs> well, you know, a part of being an old fuck is not giving a shit anymore and not caring. And so in that sense, I think the title of this instructional is incredibly apt. I think it captures the the grumpiness that comes with going past 40, getting into your older years and having to deal with a bunch of young idiot athletes on the mat. So I am in favor of the title. And today I would love to unpack exactly what you guys have been working on. I want to hear the philosophy here because this is actually one of the more commonly requested topics that we get, which is 
jujitsu for people who are older or people who have to hang competitively with people who are younger or even people who are, you know, they're doing all right, but they're just worried about things like injury prevention because as you get older, you take on more responsibilities and you're less eager to do dumb stuff on the mats. So with all of that said, I'll pass it to the two of you. Don't know who's better to, to go first and give the intro, but explain to me what led to the creation of this instructional and maybe just give me a quick rundown of, of what's in it and what the philosophy is for the material. Well, I think I'm going to jump in and take like the genesis of this was, I guess, at my behest. Uh, we like to work together relatively frequently. And uh, Stefan often asks me what I've got percolating in my uh, <laughs> in my decrepit brain. And I've been competing in master's divisions a little bit uh, you know, over the last few years, like prior to COVID and since uh, things have sort of opened up a bit. I've done a couple of Nogi Worlds in the master's division. I've got a few guys at my gym that have been pretty successful in master's divisions. I've got a few guys at my gym that are in their 60s, even in their 70s, and that are actually able to train quite regularly. So I just, I have a lot of... I have a lot of stuff that I'm putting into practice myself to ensure longevity for my, let's say, competitive career, because I really do want to be practicing jujitsu when I'm in my 70s. And I want to be competing for as long as it's reasonable for me to do so. But at the same time, I don't have any like particularly high aspirations in that like I'm not trying to do a Cobrinha and like compete in the uh, adult division in my 40s. I am absolutely willing to sacrifice any competitive accolades in favor of just keeping my body healthy and being able to do jiu-jitsu for a long time. So I, I thought that I could take that approach, like I, the techniques, the philosophies that I focus on to keep myself relatively healthy you know as a 46 year old black belt i know a lot of guys that i've trained with a lot that are in a similar age bracket and have been black belts for as long as i have and they're pretty broken and i'm not and to a certain degree i ascribe that to how i train how i focus on what i focus on and the fact that i'm you know in spite of changing my frequency, the volume of training, and in spite of not being able to train nearly as often, I'm still able to train very effectively in a way that allows me to still compete at a fairly high level for a master's athlete, but also in training, I'm able to roll very competitively with adult division black belt competitors. And so I just thought that I would have some thoughts to offer, and it turns out I do. And we presented them in this instructional. Awesome. What about you, Stefan? Give us the intro here. I was born in 1969, started lobbying to start training. I mean, sure, I wanted to become a ninja or a jiu-jitsu, a Japanese jiu-jitsu assassin or a karate assassin. Call it in the late 70s. Just to, just to quickly jump in here, when you say you were lobbying, you were lobbying to your mom and not to like the Canadian government, correct? This is correct. Yeah, okay. there were no, there was no uh, driving around uh, Capitol Hill in a truck with uh, Canadian flags honking continuously for a month. Although I think I would have done it if I could have, if that was the entrance requirement to become a ninja. Sure, I would have. Some people think that to enter the Shaolin Temple, you need to stand in a horse stance out front of the Shaolin Temple for a year. If I had had to drive around Capitol Hill as a nine-year-old in a truck for a month, that would have seemed totally comparable and actually a bit of a better deal. Most likely. More comfortable, if nothing else. So I started training judo in 1981, and I had my first concussion in 1981. I remember waking up 
uh, on the ground with a bunch of concerned adults holding my feet in the air. That was the tried and true resuscitation method in judo at the time. And I came to, and so, you know, I had my first, I will call a concussion a serious injury. I had my first concussion in the first year of training. And since then, the injuries, they, they have continued. I mean, I've had 10 surgeries in which I've had to go under general anesthetic and, you know, woke up and had to go through the, the post-op procedure and then recover from those surgeries. Eight of those were orthopedic. And eight of those orthopedic injuries came from training martial arts. Rob, how many surgeries have you had? So I've only had two. Okay. And they were quite minor. I've had two knee scopes. One I can definitely attribute to martial arts training, although it was not jujitsu, it was wrestling. Mm -hmm. And the other one I just attribute to being an old fuck because I literally just woke up one morning and my knee was sore. There wasn't like an incident in training <laughs> where my knee popped. I just I stop, I like stop, start again, better story. Yeah. <laughs> so no, like I like again, I like I'm a big advocate of how we train at Island Top Team and, and how I personally try to train because I'm very I do think I'm somewhat fortunate, but I'm also like my body doesn't hold up well to the rigors of hard training. And I think that I am an example of how successful you can be at being pretty good at jujitsu despite you know, not being overly athletic despite being fairly old and just taking care of your body and training in a relatively intelligent fashion. I think it's interesting that you mentioned that you've had two surgeries. Uh, you've done way more jujitsu, gi and no gi than you have done wrestling. I think that's fair to say. Oh, massively, by, by like a, you know, 20 to one probably ratio. Yeah. And I've similar here. I've probably done 10 to one or 20 to one jujitsu to judo. And yet, five of my surgeries came from judo, either the initial injury or the follow-up surgeries to you know, undo the damage done by the initial injury. And so I think one of the things that we're talking about, which actually we don't talk about much on the instructional, is how dangerous takedowns are in general and how the danger level of takedowns increases as you get older, more brittle, more vulnerable to damage, and less able to recover. Yeah, I mean, literally, you will have fallen and you can't get up. <laughs> <laughs> you slipped on the sidewalk and broke your hip? No, I got uh, katagarumad by an 18-year-old who then turned it into a makakomi throw and pile-drivered me. Well, you deserve that then. <laughs> well, so I see that we're coming in here from a variety of different life experiences. I mean, Rob, your experience is building and using a system that is intended to be effective while also mitigating injury prevention. Stefan, it seems like your experience is more beating yourself up and getting injured for about 40 years. And now you're held together by glucosamine pills and hockey tape, right? Is that a fair assessment? Yes. It's the yin and the yang. It's yes. Yes. The injury prevention and injury creation. Yeah. And of course, my my take here, you know, I bring the third perspective of I avoided a lot of injuries by basically not even really trying <laughs> You know, as, as a hobbyist. I've, I've never competed. I I won't say I've never trained competitively. I mean, of course, when I was younger, I went a lot harder than I am now. But just through luck at the draw and just, of course, scaling down jujitsu to more of a hobby as I get older, I've been lucky enough to dodge the the injury bug. But I do remember 
and, and I'm sure that you guys have feelings on this. I remember when I started off with jujitsu, the way that my instructor basically sold jujitsu to me. I mean, you know what the sales pitch is for the day one white belt, right? They throw you in the shark tank. They tell you nothing. They let you get tapped out and beat up about a hundred times. And the idea is you'll be so impressed that you'll sign up for jujitsu right away. And I guess that works from a marketing perspective because we do get a lot of people who sign up, although, you know, like 99% of people probably quit. So maybe it's not that great a strategy. But one of the things I think that this approach does lead to is a massive front loading of injuries, particularly at the early stages. As I get older, I am more cognizant of how my body works. I'm experienced enough to avoid dangerous situations. But man, I remember when I was a white belt, I was like dislocating my finger, breaking my toe. It seemed like every two months and I was so dumb, I would just keep training right through it. And I know that that's not an uncommon experience. I mean, I'm a hobbyist. I can only imagine what pro athletes do where they basically just beat their bodies up just tremendously. So I'd love to explore what you guys have put together and how we keep older people safe. Because I I do believe that, you know, just demographically speaking, there's a massive opportunity in terms of selling jujitsu to the every person, not the young 20 something athlete, but just regular people who are just looking for ways to improve their lives. That's one of the things about jujitsu I love is it it works for that. But you just have to keep people safe and keep people healthy while they're doing it. So with that said, I turn the floor over to you guys. I mean, where do we start here? What are some of the the main and most important things if you're an older person to take care of yourself when you're training on the mats? Well, so let me jump in on that a little bit, because this is everything that we're saying and everything that's in the instructional is true for older people more so than it is for others, but it is true for everyone to some degree. And you know, our approach at Island Top Team is very much not the let, throw you into a shark tank and let you get injured and all that kind of stuff. And we very much try to get people on board with the idea that the most important thing you need to recognize before you do jujitsu is that you need to learn how to control your body first and then control someone else's body second and then learn the submissions last and that you need to pay attention to the safety of yourself and your training partners because if you don't do that, we're going to have a... Like I said, it is a shark tank. You're going to have a survivorship bias where all these tough guys get out the back end of it and are like, look, this training method works. I'm good at jujitsu. But what about all the people that got injured and were not able to continue? We want everybody to have the opportunity to be successful. So if you start out like removing all of the red flags. So like, let's table the, the, like the, the techniques for a second. But if you just start out by getting everybody to understand that this is practice, this is not, you know, like when, when you play other sports, nobody comes to like basketball practice or like hockey practice thinking that it's a game and trying to like body check people as hard as they can. Or like, you know, like that doesn't really exist in other sports, but in jujitsu, because it's, you know, fighting adjacent, you get all these, you know, whether it's young meatheads or like old meatheads. I mean, I, I've had some older guys at my gym that, right, you, Steve, you mentioned that like the injuries are front loaded. The injuries are not front loaded for meathead old guys. They will <laughs> absolutely tear their own biceps by holding a grip too hard when they've been training for five years and don't want to lose to a younger white belt. Like mm. the, 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 that is absolutely not true if your mentality is that. And so we are trying to weed out that mentality both for beginners and for experienced people that come to our gym and just get them to understand that 
this is practice. You know, like I, I've referred somebody, if you're not familiar with the, uh, the Alan Iverson interview, the meme where he talks about like, we talk about practice. Like we're talking, not the game, we talk about practice. And that's kind of how I put it to people. It's like, you're going to roll like that in practice. What's your problem? Uh, and, and, and if you can get people out of that mindset where we're fighting, where you've got to fight tooth and nail for every single thing, that right from the get-go eliminates the front-loaded injuries and it eliminates the like the stupid injuries that don't have to happen where you're just fighting way too hard against a position or a submission that is so mechanically advantageous that you should just be yielding and if you get rid of that at the beginning and create an atmosphere where people recognize that it's practice and we're just there to help each other get better then you've taken the first and most important step to like proper training environment and then you can start to direct people into developing movements that are appropriate for their body type skill level level of fitness, level of flexibility, et cetera, et cetera. So when we start moving into like the technical aspects of it, it just becomes, you know, what is a safe way for you to move your body? What is a safe way for your training partner to move their body? And let's stay well within that. And when we're dealing with older people, the safe ways to move our bodies start to change. You become less flexible. You become less speedy. Your reaction time is slower, et cetera, et cetera. And you recover much more slowly from injuries. So we're just adding those layers on top of an already general approach to how do you develop as a grappler, recognizing that class is not competition and starting from that. And a lot of that comes from the top down, right? I mean, you have coaches out there who came up, say in Brazil or came up at a local gym and they're there, you know, they are the living example or the living embodiment of survivor bias. They trained super hard all the time, balls to the wall. They crushed all the white belts. They were crushed as a white belt. Then when they had the blue belt, they crushed all the blue belts and they were crushed by the purple belts. And by some act of God, they're the person who got through. And that's why they have a school. And now they're probably invested in their students being tough and their students getting lots of medals in competition, especially Brazilian coaches. It's amazing how driven by student success and competition, Brazilian coaches are. That's why they'll throw at a typical Brazilian school, and I'm vastly overgeneralizing, they'll throw everyone at every level into a competition, just hoping to, to win through sheer numbers. Or oh, you're a white belt, you've been training for three weeks, go in there. At the very least, you'll tire out somebody on the other team, and then a more senior white belt can hopefully win against that guy. You know, yeah. You're... you're it may be that your sole purpose in life is to drain 500 calories of energy <laughs> from an opponent. <laughs> so it really does come from the top down. It's funny you bring that up because I, you know, when I remember being a white belt, I got some garbage advice from coaches. And of course, I didn't know better because I didn't have a sport background. I didn't have a combat sport background. I was young and stupid. But I remember hearing all of that dumb stuff. I remember being told, you know, well, if you're in a competition and your opponent gets you in a choke, you should never tap out. Just go fight to the last breath and go out on, you know, on your sword, but never tap out to a choke. Lots of terrible advice like that. And that to this day is still very common. I mean, just the other day I saw, I think it was on Reddit, people 
posting that old trope about how like 99% of people who try jujitsu never stick it through. And we talk about that like that's a badge of honor or that's a good thing. How is that a good thing? If you ran a business, would you be running around and bragging if 99% of your employees quit on you? Like that doesn't make you a hard, tough man. It just means that you're a shitty teacher and that you're, you're not running a safe environment because there's a reason all of these people are churning and abandoning you. So I think that you guys are both right that starting from the top down and setting the culture is the most important thing when it comes to training safe so now i know people are listening and going but i'm not at the top i don't set the culture i'm a lowly white belt i'm a lowly blue belt i just had to move and change schools and now at this school they train really you know roughly and they don't allow me how does the white belt or the blue belt have any change over corporate culture well number one you can change schools it changing schools even changing affiliations is totally okay. I am, I'm giving you my absolution. I am making the sign of the cross right now. Go forth and switch schools if you have to. You know, maybe you trained with a great organization. Maybe you had a great experience with Alliance or, or whoever. Maybe you trained with Rob and you had a great experience with Rob and now you've moved and one of Rob's affiliates, although I can't think of who that would be, isn't just pushing his people the wrong way or, or you go to a different Alliance school because you have some residual loyalty to the organization. But that instructor is the only alliance guy in town, and he's just 1,000% focused on competition, and every round starts on the feet, and guys are getting slammed, and you're like, oh my god, I'm 50 years old, I'm going to get murdered here, and they won't allow me to train differently, then, then switch. And also, if they do give you a little bit of control, if you have a little bit of control over who you roll with, really don't feel compelled to roll with that guy. That sounds so obvious to me now. And there are certain people I wish I had never rolled with. I wish I had never rolled with certain neck crank specialists because nothing good comes out of rolling with a neck crank specialist. I, I still know the exact time the ex of day, the exact position I was in, the exact part of the room at the exact street address where I tried to muscle my way out of the neck crank of a neck crank specialist is partially being me an idiot, me being an idiot for not tapping, but more importantly, it was me an idiot for choosing to roll with that guy. So don't roll. I mean, that's good advice for everybody. But as Rob said, all the good advice for everybody applies tenfold when you're older. Yeah. And that, that's something I'll, you know, hopefully not sprain my old shoulder, patting myself on the back for this. Like <laughs> I've traveled all over the damn place and I've trained with a ton of people and I have absolutely no problem just dodging roles. Like I, I've been at gyms, you know, the, uh, two weeks before Worlds where everyone's just going ham, getting ready. And there are certain guys that are going ham and I'll roll with them because I see that they're, you know, at least somewhat invested in not hurting you. And there are certain guys that I'm just like, I'm, there's no fucking way I'm rolling with that guy. I've seen him injure two of his teammates. What's he going to do to the cannon fodder visitor that just walked in the door? And I will just straight up just turn down rolls. And that's something that I've, like, we have a pretty, a uh, very well thought out safety and etiquette policy at Island Top Team. And one of the things that I convey to people as much as I can is you do not have to roll with anybody. You can turn a roll down anytime and you can turn down a roll halfway through a roll. If you're rolling with somebody and they're just being a meathead and you're worried that they're going to injure you, you just stop and like leave, <laughs> like just tap, like, I'm sorry, I, I don't want to continue this roll. Uh, and that's not something you're going to hear very often in, in the jujitsu world. There are a lot of, 
Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Dumb fucks that run schools. <laughs> if if the recent pandemic taught us anything, it's that a lot of people who run jujitsu schools are basically idiots. And but like, who cares? Your body is so much more important than the opinion of some dumbass running a jujitsu school. Uh, and if it's not part of their culture that you can just like stop in the middle of the roll and walk off because you're worried that the other person is going to injure you, too fucking bad. You got Stefan's benediction earlier. Go switch schools. Yeah, when I learned that you can basically tap for whatever reason you want and not just because you're about to die, it really changed jujitsu for me as a whole. Because, you know, prior to this, I was indoctrinated just like I'm sure everyone was where, you know, iron sharpens iron and we're all pajama warriors and we need to, you know, just carry the the fighting spirit of the Gracies. And I'd go in there and I would just, you know, you you would have to basically kill me to get me to tap. There would have to be no chance that I'm going to get out of something. But as I got older, especially as I got to black belt, I just stopped really giving a fuck about what other people thought about me. And I stopped caring about looking bad on the mats and I'll tap for any reason at all. Now, if I'm in a role with someone and I don't think they're safe, I'll just fuck, let them have it. You know, they, they, if they really want the, the win that bad on the mats in the gym, they can have it. I'm happy to tap and just get it over with and get out of there. I have no desire now to prove my, my manly fighting spirit against a stranger that I don't even know. And I certainly don't really like. So for me, I mean, I have no problem with tapping just because I'm not comfortable with the situation and I want to get out of there. And I think that we poo poo on this a lot. A lot of instructors do, and they, they look down on this. They say things like, Oh, you should never tap to pressure. That's a sign of weakness. Well, look, if you are a, you know, a 50 year old desk worker and some giant young guy is driving his elbow into your face and you got to go to work tomorrow and you don't want to look like Edward Norton from Fight Club, maybe it's a good idea to just tap from pressure, right? Just get it over with because the stakes are pretty low in the gym in terms of what you stand to win, but the possibility of damage is pretty high. So why are you taking these stupid risks, right? It's just training. If you don't feel safe, get it over with. Well, that's some thing that we discuss with people when they come for their intro at my club is that tapping is not the you know it's not surrendering because you're about to get your arm broken tapping is a signal that you are not sure that you're safe and that you don't want to continue and as a beginner that needs to be communicated to you because I went through the same thing. You know, I started grappling in like my early 20s and you basically had to pop my arm to get me to tap because that's what I thought it was. It was like, oh yeah, no, unless I'm like absolutely about to have my arm broken, I'm not supposed to tap. And that's a horrible attitude. You know, again, it's just, this, this doesn't exist in other sports. Uh, it's a level of like ignorance and machismo that like the sort of dumb fucks that use the term alpha unironically will, 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 you know, will, will use in life. But like, who's trying to aspire to be those guys? Well, I mean, I guess other dumb fucks, but like, you know, like if, if you're a regular dude who's just doing jujitsu, and I mean, even if you're an athlete who wants to do jujitsu at a high level, how high level are you going to get if you're constantly injured because you're toughing shit out in the gym? Like all this stuff is not just for the 40 year old guy or, or, or the hobbyist. This is just logical shit that you do when you do any kind of sport where you try to maximize keeping your body safe so you can do that sport as much as possible so that you can get as good as you can at that sport. Rolling super hard all the time is just the anathema to that. It's, it's not conducive to good skill development. Nobody's saying that if you're going to compete that you shouldn't roll hard some of the time. But if 
I think Rob's point is that if you're rolling hard all the time, then you're just you're just not going to get as much total training reps in. Oh, a hundred percent. Like that's, that's what I tell my students. It's like, hey, when we're getting ready for competition, if you show up for competition tra- training, you better be ready to roll hard. But if you're just coming to a regular class to develop some skill and you're treating it like it's a competition role, that's not appropriate for skill development and it's not appropriate for longevity. That level of intensity that you need to prepare for competition should be used sparingly and in a like as intelligent a manner as possible. And also, and this is really important to convey to beginners, rolling hard is a privilege. You earn the right to roll hard by getting good at jujitsu so that you can roll hard safely. You know, if I want to do a really hard roll with Rory, I'm going to be able to do it. Like Rory and I can roll with each other at 80% intensity quite frequently and not injure one another because our movements are skillful and deliberate and we know how to retain control. If you're a white belt and you're rolling at 80% or 90%, you don't have the control to do that safely. Or receive it safely. Or receive it safely, exactly. So you should just never do it. I've seen day one white belts get balloon swept straight under their head. They didn't break their neck, but they did seriously jack their neck. And that was the last time they were ever seen in class. So what day one white belts shouldn't be doing balloon sweeps, but even less than that, they shouldn't be receiving balloon sweeps. Yes. Yeah, I think that the psychology of how to train safely is so important, and you guys touch on it. Just this, And there is this dichotomy here, because, of course, if you do want to be an elite-level competitor or even just a semi-serious competitor, you need to train competitively at times. But I think there's no question, at least for the three of us anyway, that as a community people within jujitsu have really dumbass training methods. I mean, on the the prior episode that's going to go live before this one, Andrew Wiltsey joined us. Of course, Andrew, best known, busted onto the scene for being a guy who basically would murder himself in the gym. I mean, there are a few people out there who train harder than that guy does. And of course, as he gets more experienced and his, you know, his profile has grown, he's been working with a lot of coaches and talking to Olympic level wrestlers. And just in the last episode, he talked about how surprised he was to learn that these guys don't kill themselves like that. They train intelligently. That's not to say they're lazy, but it's just that they're very strategic about when they take those risks on. Whereas in a lot of jujitsu gyms, if they consider themselves quote unquote high level, people basically treat every role like it's a tournament final, which just is not good for your longevity. Well, and this is goes back to my point is that a lot of people in the jujitsu world are idiots. And a lot of people who are running gyms are idiots. And the other sports, the other combat sports, you know, the boxing, the wrestling, the judo, anything that has an Olympic pedigree, anything that has, you know, decades and decades of high level competition development behind it, they've figured out how to train. And it's like you said, it's a matter of training intelligently and knowing when and how to push your body so that you peak for competition. It's not a matter of just beating yourself down. There's, I mean, we can give examples of this from, you know, different sports, different different endeavors. It's not a smart way to develop. And we just, we need to stop 
you know, idolizing idiots, both in jujitsu and in society, <laughs> because the fruits of their labor is just, you know, our bodies being broken for no reason. And so like, whether it's, you know, finding a different school or just you yourself being willing to stand against the tide at your school and train differently, if you want to maximize your potential in the sport, it doesn't come from rolling hard all the time. And it doesn't come from breaking your body at the behest of some meathead who uh, feels that you're a pussy if you don't do so. So as Rob said before, everything that applies to younger people and everything that we've just been talking about applies to younger people applies tenfold to older people. And I think that's in the very beginning of the instructional, we talk about training limitations and how your, how your training has to change and how what you do has to change as you get older. And one of the very first things that we talk about is the rate at which you recover. Because when you're young, you can go out and really destroy yourself. I mean, I don't, I had been training since I was age 12. And I'd been training pretty hard. And I had never felt sore from a workout ever until I was 18. So from that era, that golden age of 12 to 18, unless I injured myself, but just sore from fatigue or sore from you know muscles not recovering, one good night's sleep, and I was good to go. My levels of growth hormone were through the roof. My levels of testosterone were through the roof. And you could basically recover from anything in one night's sleep. The first time that failed me was age 18. And then it still was a very rare occurrence. I'd rarely wake up feeling sore from the last day's training. But every decade that goes on, You'd feel your previous day's training just as much. You could still go hard, but a new limitation on training is the rate at which you can recover from the previous day's training. So even leaving the whole injury thing aside, we've been dwelling on injury because injury is the enemy, but even leaving the injury thing aside, training intelligently also helps you maximize the, uh, the benefits that you get, and you just can't train as often when you get older because your recovery rate plummets. And that everybody in every sport says that. Is it Mark Allen, the guy who won the Hawaii Ironman at some ridiculously old age, I think in his early 40s. And he said the key to his winning, I think it was Mark Allen, was basically 12 hours of sleep a night and a nap. Right? So he was getting that massive amount of sleep in to try and recover from the high volumes of training he had to do. And I bet when he was 18 years old, he wasn't doing that. Now, who among us can sleep 12 hours a day and have a nap? I don't know anybody who can do that except depressed teenagers. But <laughs> this isn't uh, BJJ for depressed teenagers. That's our next title, Rob. <laughs> that would be a great instructional, actually. <laughs> but you, you, know, you bring up a great point, Stefan, and I would expand on that, that it's not even just that the body starts slowing down and things take longer to fix themselves when you get older, but it's also that you're going to have a different life perspective. I mean, when I was 20, you know, and I went into jujitsu, I had nothing to lose. You know, I wasn't married. I had no kids. I was young. I was stupid. If I wanted to backflip to get out of someone's armbar, I would do it just because. But as you get older you know you have more obligations there's more people who depend on you when you have a, a family or employees you got other things going on in life you have obligations it gets harder and harder to put all of that time into 
training and into jujitsu. And so you also have to start calling your shots more efficiently because you just don't have that much time. You got other things to juggle. And even if you get older and your body is still working the way that you want it to, you're probably going to be less inclined to do dumb things because you have that life perspective. I mean, you know, I've, I've got a kid. I want to be able to play with her. I want to be able to squat down on my knees and, you know, reach her eye level and talk to her. And I'm not going to let some idiot turn my leg backwards and not tap out of pride because of that. You know, I, I want to make sure that I'm healthy for my family so that I can do the work I have to do so I can be my best when I'm with my kid. That stuff is my priority. And that definitely does impact my jujitsu because I have, I, I'd say I've adopted a more conservative game as I get older. I assess movements and techniques for their, not just their effectiveness, but also their risk level. And that's been a big change in my thinking as I've got older is understanding that, look, something might work, but that doesn't mean is necessarily the safest thing to do. So I'll always be looking for, you know, if all other things are equal between a bunch of different options, I'm going to choose the option that presents the less risk to me. And that's a change in my thinking that I didn't notice until I got over 30. Yeah, and I mean, I think to a certain degree, my career as a, you know, well-known or somewhat well-known jiu-jitsu instructor is sort of built around the idea of uh, through conceptual understanding and through certain aspects of like gamification and developing you know, certain pedagogy methods, you can economize or accelerate your growth in jiu-jitsu so like you know I, i'm kind of known for like I, we've got a visiting student program at our gym if people haven't heard about it we have people come from all over the world and one of my visitors basically called me a jiu-jitsu accelerator in that you can use the methods that we teach to well accelerate how well you learn and so part of this this process that we use to give people a conceptual underpinning in jiu-jitsu and help them focus on the things that will yield the highest results from like an 80 20 analysis that just work in general they work quite well when you're older when you know as you're talking about how do I analyze something? How do I select a technique for lower risk of injury? For da, da, da. You know, when you understand jujitsu more conceptually, and when you understand what is truly high percentage, what isn't, what is a, an, an efficient approach, you can still be effective. And that's what we're trying to do with this instructional is give people effective jujitsu. If they're 40, if they're 50 or whatever, we're not trying to give you jujitsu that is like lesser. We're not trying to say, you know, jujitsu for old fucks, but it's not going to be good jujitsu. We're trying to say that there's a way to do jujitsu that is very effective, very efficient, takes into account training limitations, takes into account flexibility limitations, things that start to accumulate as you get older. But just by focusing on what is the most high yield movement and the high yield tactics that you can use you know, in this instructional we're focusing on the guard so we're talking about these different approaches to the guard and how do you maximize your training time and your efficiency in learning so that you can still be effective in addition to low risk techniques and in addition to low flexibility techniques we should probably also include low energy techniques i mean the, one of the crazes right now in nogi is starting on the ground and basically using an initial setup to wrestle up on your feet and come up in a single, come up in a double. And I think we're going to see a lot of that at Abu Dhabi. And it's a very effective strategy. But it, for one, it takes a ton of energy. And for two, it violates the other principle of avoiding stuff that's going to get you injured, especially when you're older. Because now you're on, you know, let's say by some act of God, you manage to explode up from your butterfly guard and snag a single leg. And now you've got some 
young dude who's hopping around on his leg, on his one leg, and he's going to jump into, I don't know, flying Kanibasami, or he's going to try and backflip out of it. And uh, it just creates a highly dynamic situation where just inherently the odds of getting injured probably based on one set of statistics I saw a long time ago, uh, 20 to 40 times higher than if you'd stayed on the ground. So yeah, that's a good example of a strategy that's probably not applicable for most people. Now, if you've got a neck, you know, if you're 50 years old, but you still got a, a very stable body, and you've been wrestling for 30 years. Okay. What I just said doesn't apply to you, but it does apply to 95% of, you know, old fucks even those guys that have been wrestling forever like i was just in seattle training with a good friend of mine who's a you know, really good black belt elite level adult division black belt and he has a you know, pretty good wrestling background in in most jujitsu scenarios that he's facing in competition he's always the better wrestler but he's got some you know some accumulated injuries for that and he's not an old fuck he's a young guy and he's you know, like when, when we were training, he's like, man, I, you know, the, I can wrestle, but man, I'd, I'd really rather play more guard or, or whatever. And so I think it's important that we still kind of recognize that even amongst that category of like people who are good at wrestling and people who are young and physical and able to do these things at a certain point. It still becomes, if you're, if you're talking about longevity, obviously, if you're trying to maximize your odds of winning ADCC this year, what I'm saying does not apply. But if you're trying to maximize your longevity, you know, the approach that we advocate in this instructional is going to be the approach that you want to take, which is, you know, you're going to play guard a certain way. And then we can start talking about like the different specific like guard scenarios and, and get into that. But like, uh, you know, one of the things that I was doing when, when we did some training this weekend with this, this guy was I was approaching my sweeps and like like trying to get him down on his back and solidify the sweep in a different way than he was. He would gladly wrestle up because he's a better wrestler than me and it worked. I would never wrestle up. I would only try to complete a sweep on him if I controlled both his legs. And he just was like, well, that's a really interesting approach. That works really well. I'm like, yeah, dude, I can't wrestle like you. There's no chance that I'm going to take the risk of injury or the risk of draining my gas tank trying to wrestle you down. But if I just control both of your legs, I can complete the sweep. And that's just what I advocate as a conceptual approach to all my students. And it's what I'm using to decide whether or not I'm going to pursue completing a sweep against somebody, whether it's in training or even in competition. If I go to Nogi Worlds this year, you're not going to see me trying to like complete a single leg on someone. But if I can get both your ankles and put you on your butt, I will wrestle my way up from there because I'm at such a mechanical advantage controlling both of your legs that it doesn't matter if you're a superior wrestler or a superior athlete and that's the stuff that we're focusing on in this instructional is understanding how to use the guard to tie people up so much that you limit their superior physicality whether it's because they're just a better wrestler or they happen to be 25 and you're 50. Well, let's get into that because I think that this is a good time to start talking about the specifics here. You bring up a good point, which is that for this purpose, not all guards are created equal. There are going to be some guards that are more effective against an athletic opponent because they allow you to neutralize them, whereas other guards maybe require a level of uh, dynamism or athleticism that we as old fucks don't have. So maybe let's launch into that and give some examples of what kind of guards are effective when you're going up against that younger, stronger opponent. 
Yeah. So, I mean, like we start out with the seated guard versus standing. And so when we say guards here, what, what we're actually, ta- we're not talking about like, you know, Delaheva versus reverse Delaheva. What we're talking about is that there are generally going to be four scenarios that you're going to face as a guard player. You're going to be a seated guard player facing a standing passer. You're going to be a seated guard player facing a kneeling passer, or you're going to be a recumbent guard player facing a standing passer, or you're going to be a recumbent guard player facing a kneeling passer. And we just, we give you those four scenarios and we cover how you need to approach them. And just in case people are confused by recumbent in this context, we mean, and in pretty much every context, lying flat on your back. So the the traditional jujitsu meme of the guy just sitting there on his back yeah. like a dead spider. That's what we're t- climate taught me and meet your doom. Yes, <laughs> yeah. So those four you know categories of guard that you're going to face, whether it's in training or in competition, they have a varied level of I don't want to say effectiveness, but effectiveness in terms of like potential longevity for an older grappler, right? Like I personally, I'm very comfortable playing a recumbent guard versus a standing passer because I've got a highly developed guard retention game and I'm quite flexible. Like in terms of hamstring flexibility, I'm not very flexible hip wise, but I'm very comfortable with not getting my guard passed against quite a bit of like advanced passing pressure. But I don't recommend that older grapplers default to or uh, you know have their their preferred guard structure be recumbent versus a standing passer because you're basically conceding what we refer to as the engagement phase or the the hand fight and you're allowing the the standing passer to just try to pass your guard if you are on your back you don't get to move into an offensive guard unless you're very good at defending movement-based passing and you have good guard retention and in the transitions between that you're able to establish a guard whereas if you start seated versus a standing passer they are forced to engage you in a hand fight which you are able to use that engagement to then put yourself if you want to be playing guard from your back you can but you're going to win a hand fight before you do it so we're mitigating the risk of giving the other person initial control of your legs and then running around like a chicken with their damn head cut off, running circles around you until you just give up because you're about to have a heart attack and they just pass your guard because they're fitter than you are. So like that's just an example of two scenarios that like, it, it's not that you can't do it. It's just that if you're older, you're much less likely to be successful doing it. And even if you're not older, you're still going to have to have certain attributes or a very highly developed skill set in one department to make that effective. And what we want to do is give you something that you can still be good without having to invest tons of time in having outstanding guard retention from your back. You know, it's funny you bring that up because I remember having that exact change of thought up until purple belt, maybe brown belt. I used to prefer a recumbent or a supine guard. I would just kind of lie on my back and just rely on my own speed and reaction time and agility so that if my opponent tried to run around me, I would regard and use that as an, a moment to to entangle them. But then at some point I realized the same thing as you, like I am seeding the grip fight by doing this. I'm giving the other person a mechanical advantage because if I 
lie down on my back like that. They can get at my legs and I cannot get at much of theirs. And I am relying on my own attributes to try to be fast enough and bouncy enough, basically, to make them pay for it. And there are people who can do that. But I realized at some point that ain't me. <laughs> you know, maybe that game. Uh, there's tons of people who try and pull their opponents into spider guard that way. Yeah. But you need you need a fair amount of flexibility and mobility. Mm-hmm. to do the circle in, circle out, circle in, circle out, and you know, wrap a lasso around one arm. Well, even then, a lot of the time, those people will, they will get the grips standing, for example, and then pull down into a recumbent. Yeah, and I will say, though, that this distinction is a little bit less important in the gi, because in the gi, when somebody approaches your recumbent guard and grabs your pant leg, that does give you the ability to grab their sleeve and immediately spider up. In nogi, if somebody's grabbing your ankles or your feet, you don't really have an easy complementary grip and guard that you can default to. So you have to play guard retention. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me let me follow up here with a related question regarding things like spider guard. What do you guys think of, I would call them grip-based guards, like a gi grip-based guards for older people? I mean, I know a lot of older people with seriously messed up fingers because they rely on things like spider guard as the basis for their game. What do you guys think about those types of guards for older people, people who are trying to keep their hands in good shape? Is it a situation where there's a way to play those safely? This sounds like very much like a leading question. <laughs> <laughs> it is a leading question. <laughs> I think they're they're terrible. I mean, spider guard and uh, Delheva guard, where you're you know, based on grabbing the sleeves and lapels, is automatically going to force the other guy to go into a heavy grip break game. So now it's true. Like say I say I've got you in spider guard and you cross stomp my leg and just rip your arm out because you have to do it hard. If you do it a little bit lightly, it's I'm not going to let go. So now, it's true that I could just let go whenever my grip is endangered. But but how many beginners or even blue belts or even purple belts do that? Exactly. Very few. Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh they learn the way that you make toast, you know? Cook toast it till it burns and one minute less. Oh, I I really shouldn't have held on until my finger was pointing 90 degrees to my other fingers. I hope somebody at the class here is a doctor, pretty much like a doctor, and can reset this finger straight. Uh, they, they've all... So... I'm sure my instructor knows. He knows everything about epidemiology based on his Instagram posts, so he can probably yeah. reset my finger. Yeah, pretty much. So, yeah, I mean, whenever you run into somebody, and they, 100% of the time, the hundreds of the times, the hundreds of the times, the hundreds of times that people have gotten in touch with me and asked me about sore fingers in jiu-jitsu, it's come down to playing grip-based gi guards. And when by, you know, I'm like, okay, do you play spider guard or delaheva guard? Yes. Now, those are very effective guards. And when those, you know, the, the, the answer is always the same. Do some no gi and work on some guards that don't require insane grip. And then usually their hands feel better. Now, there are safer grips. I mean, if you feed a lapel through the legs as part of your half guard game, okay, cool. That's unlikely to mangle your fingers. But if you're trying to grab sleeves and control lapels, your fingers are going to get mangled. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so in the in the instructional, whether we're dealing with gi grappling or no gi grappling, one of the approaches that we're really trying to advocate is the idea of 
creating an, well, for one, trying to win the initial engagement phase and win a hand fight, which that's just true regardless of how old you are or how good you want to become. But what we're trying to focus on is like, aside from that, you know, we want to win a hand fight. We want to get to a guard. When we get to that guard, we want to create an off-balancing movement that forces a step that allows us to connect to both legs. And that's the approach that we're taking is whether it's a, you know, recumbent versus standing or seated versus standing, whatever. We're trying to get to a position where we can bind both legs together, thereby taking away the athletic potential of the top player and, you know, waddle our old decrepit ass on top by denying them the ability to maintain good base by just controlling both their legs. Yeah, I wish someone had told me this when I started off earlier in jujitsu because, man, I remember as soon as I figured this out, that if you have some control of both of the person's legs, you can shoot the ugliest, most hideous garbage takedown, and it's still going to work because the person can't stand up. In the gi. In the gi. In the gi. Yes. Worth clarifying, I'm primarily a gi guy. No gi is a little bit different just due to the slip factor and the fact that you've got uh, reduced options for grips. But even then, the ability to control both of the person's legs it just prevents so much of their movement and that's something that i wish had been kind of disclosed and explained to me earlier that look not all sweeps not all takedowns are created equal some are just mechanically easier to to get if you're a low intensity player and also some of them are just less likely to put you in a bad position whether that mean you know you're less likely to wind up getting smashed on the bottom or just you're less likely to get injured they not all sweeps not all takedowns are created equal in that capacity well, and honestly, part of the reason that that's not as well known, like, you know, th- this idea of controlling both legs before you try to complete a sweep. I, I mean, I've trained with black belts that are like, oh, damn. Yeah, that's hey, that's a really good idea. That's really effective. And they're good black belts. It's just like, you know, we exist in a, an ecosystem where unless you're a, a high level black belt or a high level competitor of some sort, the majority of the people you sweep fall down for no good reason and stay down because we do jujitsu. So we want to play guard. And so if you don't exist in an ecosystem, you know, where in your academy, people are adept at fighting off bad sweeps, you will get away with bad sweeps until you're a purple belt or until you compete against, you know, relatively decent people. And so there isn't an incentive or a selection process for what makes a good sweep, what constitutes a good sweep, what constitutes a bad sweep. Whereas if you exist in an ecosystem where people train sweep recovery and don't just fall down because you said boo, then you'll recognize right away. Like I know, Stefan, you had mentioned to me, I think when we did the first instructional together, the BJJ formula, and I introduced the idea of fuck your jujitsu sweeping and how to develop, you know, sweep ability and sweep uh, recovery. And you had said like, Correct me if I'm wrong, but once you do a little bit of fuck your jujitsu, about 80% of the sweeps in jujitsu just don't work. (laughs) And that's basically true. Yeah. We just had a conversation with Robert Deagle about this and high percentage techniques and his argument, and I completely agree, is that most of the quote unquote fundamentals are maybe they're taught frequently, maybe they're taught to beginners, but that doesn't mean they're great techniques. It just means that some Gracie grandpa decided a hundred years ago that we should do these. I mean, scissor sweeps, you very rarely see a scissor sweep against a really good person, but it's still to this day, like one of the first things you're going to teach a white belt at most gyms. 
Yeah, I mean, we could start listing off exactly. Like, I've, I'm on record saying that most of what people learn in the first week or month of jujitsu shouldn't be taught. It's certainly not in the first week or month of jujitsu because the way it's going to be practiced by that person is just not going to be high percentage or effective. So, yeah, or or set you up for injury. I mean, yeah, you had an interesting point, Rob, that I actually had never thought about before, which is that the armbar from guard which is one of the archetypal techniques to teach to a white belt on their first day, not only is it fairly unlikely to work, but it's also fairly likely to set that guy up for injury. And as soon as you said that, I'm like, oh my God, you're right. Because the obvious response to that is to stack your opponent. Basically turn him into a pretzel and try and put all of his weight and your weight through his cervical and thoracic vertebra to make him uncomfortable enough to decide to let go of your armbar. Yeah. Or conversely, you know, you're a beginner, you've learned sort of how to do an armbar and you you're lucky enough to get somebody in an armbar during rolling in your first week and you you try to get them to tap but they don't tap cuz your armbar is dog shit and then you just decide to ham your hips into their elbow <laughs> because you're clearly just need to go a lot harder if they're not tapping and you wreck someone's elbow because you're a beginner and you have no control and you also wreck your own testicles because that's normally what happens if you're doing <laughs> <laughs> so like on on every level teaching a beginner an armbar from the guard is stupid and shouldn't be done but you know in the instructional we do go specifically through the closed guard and how you're going to use the closed guard not just as a beginner but also as an old person who doesn't want to get stacked on your neck and what techniques to to get good at and to focus on first and then once you're good at those things go ahead and do the armbar from the closed guard like when we say the armbar from the closed guard is not high percentage we don't mean like ever we just mean not for beginners and there's an amount of movement and control you need to exhibit from the closed guard before you start worrying about trying to armbar people from there. And I mean, the armbar from the closed guard is a high percentage finish. Like it is done at the highest levels at the black belt level in gi at ADCC. Like people do get armbarred from the closed guard. So we're not saying it's not high percentage. It's just the way it's taught to beginners is not high percentage. And it's much more likely to lead to injuries both on the armbarer and the armbaree. Yeah, that's something that to me, I wish more people taught, which is when you're thinking about a technique to think about what are the consequences of failure? Because most instructors don't mention this at all. You know, Rob, Stefan, I know you guys have talked a lot about making sure that you think about the predictable responses to what you're doing, because knowing those and getting ahead of those is so key to, to fluid grappling. And I think that applies with things like techniques from the guard, because different techniques from the guard have different potential bad outcomes. You know, if you try to triangle someone from the close guard and you fail that can go real bad for you especially if they're big and especially if if slams are legal with the armbar for example the the most common and likely thing your opponent is going to do is they're going to try to stack you and pass you so even if you don't get injured if you fail you're going to wind up in bottom side control whereas I, I personally feel and maybe i'm wrong on this but i personally feel that techniques like the omoplata for example are a lot safer especially for a new person to do from the bottom because just the bad outcomes seem to me to be less likely to happen if only someone would make an instructional about the omoplata or the broke all of this down that would be really fantastic right stefan <laughs> thank you for the plug <laughs> yeah I, I, first i'm going just deciding to go ultra conservative and i'm 
just going to be going for cross chokes from now on. Nothing <laughs> but cross chokes from close guard. The end. <laughs> Well, to be fair, I did try a cross joke on a white belt one time, and he responded by punching me in the face. So, you know, even that is not that safe. <laughs> yeah, back in the back in the day, the only context in which the cost of failure or the price of failure was mentioned ever was if you were fighting. If you were in a fight or if you're doing MMA, don't give up the top position. Don't go for an armbar from the top because you go from the top to the bottom, and then you could get pounded. So... That is the only discussion of the price of failure of my first probably 15 years of jiu-jitsu that I can remember having. Don't go for an armbar from the top, from the mount, if you're in an actual fight. And that's bad advice. While we're on the topic, though, of like cost of failure and like back in the day, like how is it that the closed guard became the like self-defense guard? That's a terrible place to be if somebody can hit you. Yeah. Especially in a self-defense environment because they can headbutt you. So, yeah. Just, anyway. I think it's all just Gracie marketing, right? People learned about jujitsu, the majority of us, because they saw Hoist do his thing in the cage. And that's part of the marketing and part of the lore. And I think so much of what we do in jujitsu still to this day derives from people aspiring to fight like that and to emulate that, even though we know now that is a very suboptimal way to fight a lot of the time. It's not to say it won't work, but I'm just saying, if you're in a self-defense situation, you might not want to pull guard and kick the guy in the kidney with your heel. That might not be a good idea. <laughs> well, Helio Gracie was really good at the close guard for his generation. I think, I think that's fair to say. But a lot of the Gracie myth was also built around tricking boxers to put on geese and gloves, and now we'll have a boxing versus jiu-jitsu fight. And if I'm fighting a boxer and he's wearing a gi, I will happily do close guard all day long. I've, I have done that training. Yes. It is ridiculously easy to control somebody who's trying to punch you. I mean, I, I you know, spider guard becomes my, I'm not a big spider guard guy, but you don't need to be a <laughs> yeah. good spider guard guy against a boxer who's, who can't make grips because he's wearing gloves. <laughs> you can ragdoll him all over the place. It is the funnest training ever. I highly recommend it. And, you know, it's great for self-defense. So I think in that context, close guard would be very, very good. Also, I mean, we have to remember that the idea of open guard is a reasonably recent one. I mean, when Hicks and Gracie moved to Los Angeles, he was teaching never open your close guard for based on accounts I have from people I know who trained there, never open your close guard for any reason. And it was only when the Machados came to town that sometimes you would open your guard. Right? So this is a reasonably recent development, probably in the 80s. Maybe, I, I don't know when um, spider guards started coming into vogue, uh, when Draculino started developing that. That was probably in the 80s, late 80s, early 90s as well. So a lot of people who are teaching at schools now in North America came up in that era where open guard was still kind of dodgy and Close guard was at least the, that's now that's a guard. 
Yeah. It's also worth noting, too, that closed guard is very body type dependent. I mean, and, you know, if you are an older guy, unless you've got really long legs, I mean, if you're in there with a young athletic person, it is hard to just prevent them from posturing and getting up. It is very challenging to do. I found that when I switched to focus more on open guards, it just made everything feel more dynamic. And I also felt a lot safer because I wasn't tethered to my opponent. You know, me being a decrepit little hobbyist, if I latch onto someone like a front facing fanny pack if they're a really athletic person they can just lift me up and do whatever they want with me whereas with open guards i i felt like i have more control and i'm not so tethered to the person and it's not so dependent on my attributes yeah absolutely i mean to be fair we do also show the closed guard in our instructional it's just that we're oh it does work it does work it, yeah, yeah and we're what we're doing though is we're, we're trying to give it to people with the uh, you know, awareness of the limitations that you're talking about. You know, we, we mentioned how difficult it is to keep, you know, a young athletic person from just standing up in your closed guard. Like the closed guard by itself, i.e., you know, me wrapping my legs around you and crossing my ankles is really not enough. And so we advocate using the closed guard with broken posture and the shoulder clamp where you're controlling somebody, you know, at the hips and at the shoulder to try to create even more mechanical advantage, you know, for for us old fucks, frankly, to, to slow somebody down and to take away their ability to do what you just suggested, which is just pick you up and right. uh, and, and shake you off or, or what have you. And if they pick you up or they stand up, for the love of God, open your legs, people. Let go. Yeah. <laughs> like- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, even if you've got the nicest training partner in the world who has no intention to to hurt you, it's very hard to stay balanced while you're holding someone like, again, like a koala latching onto you, right? If someone lifts you up and you're still clinging to them, there's no guarantee that they're going to be able to keep their balance, right? You might go for a nasty slam, whether your opponent intends it or not. So it's a... Well, and, and it's not just that you might go for a nasty slam, it's that they might step funny and all of your weight will go laterally into their knee and now you've just yeah. blown your training partner's knee or they blew their own knee out by picking you up like again like soon as you've got a human body hanging off of another human body the potential for injury goes up exponentially i do remember training with a rubber guard specialist back in the day back in the day and he i let him get a triangle on me and he was quite a bit lighter than me he's probably about your weight steve so i let him get the triangle on me but i had enough posture and uh, enough clamp down with my arm to make it survivable and I picked him up, and we were training in a kickboxing place. And I ran around the room, hitting him off of every single heavy bag. Boom, 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 boom. <laughs> and then there was a stairs going down to where the fighters lived. And I went, and I stood at the top of the stairs, looking down the stairs, and go, okay, go ahead, tighten your choke, knowing that if I passed out, <laughs> we'd go down the stairs with him on the bottom. And he called me a lot of really nasty names and let go and we are still friends to this day so it it, it worked at the short term and it worked at the long term you should have taken him out onto the street where the ground is covered by glass shards and needles and lava you know and then he would really have a problem and i'm not really a a fan of that whole like oh you know that wouldn't work in the street uh, like stuff (laughs) but honestly the way that we protect people in like the jujitsu rule set that is mostly used in most competitions where you can not slam someone if you pick them up is absurd to me like i I do like the the fact that in adcc hey go ahead and triangle someone but if they pick you up they're gonna bomb your head off the mats oh 
There's an easy middle ground here, Rob. In judo, if you have me in a sankakujime, a triangle choke, and I stand up and I lift you off the ground, it's a break. The the slam is assumed. Yep. It's implicit. Uh, we break and I'm out of the submission. If you have me in an arm bar and I stand up, lift you off the ground, it's that's it. The arm bar is considered escaped. So I completely agree. Like that that is probably, you know, top two or three of like if I could just change the rules in jujitsu, that would be a rule change that I would implement immediately. Yeah, I, I agree. I think we give people a massively false sense of security because people don't understand the danger they're in if they try to lock up a triangle on a bigger, stronger person who still has their posture, right? You are putting yourself in a lot of danger. Just generally speaking, you never want to be in a situation where your entire body is wrapped around and tethered to a standing opponent who's controlling you because you're basically going to be a tetherball at that point. And especially if you're an old fuck, <laughs> you might not bounce back from the injury that you you incur you'll bounce off the mats but that's about it yeah awesome well one other thing i want to dig into here let's talk a little bit about the inevitable limitations that appear on your training as you get older i was talking to a colleague recently and we were describing reaching the age of 40 as being like when the manufacturer's warranty expires you know how you buy a piece of electronics or something and it works great for the first year while it's under warranty but then like the day after the warranty expires it's like the fucking thing knows and everything just starts breaking and there's nothing you can do about it i kind of feel like the body's like that you know i woke up the other day and i realized i can't bend my ring finger anymore nothing happened i just can't do it it's like i guess that's my life now (laughs) you know just as you get older things start locking down they don't perform like they used to and that doesn't even get into like we talked about earlier impose limitations just due to your lifestyle or you know maybe there are certain injuries you can't risk because of the job that you do let's talk about those limitations because i understand that's something that you go into in the instructional as well Yeah, I mean, I think that we've already touched a little bit on what I think is the most important limitation, which is you can't train as often. I think that that is, I don't think there are too many exceptions to that. Like whatever your baseline level of athleticism is, everybody's, you know, different. I'm not particularly athletic, but I could train more in my 30s. And I could train more in my 20s than I could in my 30s and so on and so on. So like whatever your baseline level of athleticism is, you will still be age limited as to how much you can train because of the recovery process. I think that one is pretty universal. The flexibility one is not universal. Like, again, I'm fairly flexible. I I can, my hamstrings are, are good. There are guys that I know that are in their 50s. They've got incredible hip flexibility. It's not a given that you will decrease in flexibility as you get older if you just work on it. But no matter how- But even if you work on it, you may still massively decrease in flexibility. I worked on it and ended up in a hip replacement. So now I still have limited mobility, but it doesn't hurt anymore, right? I, you know, I once re- produced a yoga instructional in my 30s where I was fairly flexible and I was hugely underplaying it because I was trying to be like the beginner version while the yoga instructor I was working with mm-hmm. was a yoga for martial arts instructional where the instructor I was working with was, you know, nose to the floor, I'd be pretending like I couldn't get my nose to the floor, when in fact, I could get my nose to the floor. And I kept on stretching. But despite stretching, despite working on it, I could feel my hips closing in, closing in, closing in. Turns out that osteoarthritis, you're not being limited by tight tendons, you're being limited by changing structure of the bone, the structure of the bone itself. So 
if, if you're not dealing with issues like that, yeah, and you're diligent about it. Well, it, it, but that's what I'm saying. Like, it's not a given. Not everyone will develop osteoarthritis in their hips, but we should assume that we will and reduce the amount of movements that we're employing that rely on extreme flexibility, which is what we advocate in the instructional. I think it's also moving away from movements that require a lot of explosiveness. Basically, anything attribute-based, yes. right? If, if you're if they're flexibility-based guards, I would probably not go there unless you're one of those freakazoids who can spend an hour a day stretching. If there are strength-based techniques, I wouldn't go there unless you are also in the gym doing all of the work on your your muscles and on all the stabilizers to maintain that high level of strength. And there are some people who do. If your movement requires a ton of explosiveness, if you're you know, wrestling up. Yeah, I, you can do it if you're willing to put in the work. And obviously, Rob and I would both advocate putting in work. Uh, oh, sorry, movements, uh, attacks that are based on tons of cardio and just grinding your opponent down. Right? Move, 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 move. Ah, oh, you fall over. Great. That's a valid strategy in your 20s. Most people have their endurance their muscular endurance, their aerobic endurance, their anaerobic endurance go down as they get older. Again, I would guess that that would also be a pretty universal thing, right? Like unless you just didn't do cardio when you were younger and you started doing cardio in your 40s, you're not going to have better cardio in your 40s than you did when you were in your 30s or in your 20s. That's just physiologically not possible. There are exceptions, right? Okay, so some dude was a okay. couch potato played nothing but video games for his first 40 years and then decided to get in shape and started running marathons. All right. Okay, great. Good for you. You found the one exception to what we're trying to get across. Yeah. We've already said that yeah. these are generalizations. These are rules of thumb. These are uh, sort of an 80-20 analysis of the general population. If you're 50 years old and you can do nothing but eat, sleep, train, take growth hormone, take TRT, and have a live-in yoga coach. Okay, great. Keep on. Go do spider guard. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting because one of the things I've learned is that getting older is not the same for everybody. You know, when you get into the room with all of the other old guys and everyone's complaining about all of their injuries and what's not working properly and what is, yeah, some people will lose their flexibility first. For other people, it's cardio. For other people, it might be just they're struggling with grips, for example. It's not a, a linear thing and it varies from person to person. But of course, the, the finish line is pretty much the same as you get, you know, once you get to a certain age, just all of your attributes attributes are going to drop. And that's kind of just the way it is. I mean, maybe some degree of flexibility you can retain, but I would still say it's probably not wise to adopt a game that is totally attribute dependent on your own flexibility, just for your own injury prevention, if nothing else. I was young. I was dumb. I was using rubber guard. A guy lurched into me and I tore my LCL. I was off the mats. I was unable to train fully for I was unable to train properly, for, I think, for six months. There was some training in there, but it was heavily constrained. Okay, <laughs> let's just play half guard on this one side. Or let me just use this one style of guard passing. So there were workarounds eventually. But it was six months till I felt normal. But if I had the, same, the exact same situation happened now, I'd be off for a year. 
Yeah, and, and one thing that I'm a big advocate of is that style of, you know, constraint training where, like, you know, I say I'm fortunate and I haven't had, you know, many major injuries or surgeries or whatever, but like, you know, I do jujitsu for a living. I, I get hurt. And the in the past, in the gyms that I trained at before I had my own gym, you know, if you were hurt, it was too bad. Like, you didn't have the opportunity to train because you were either going 100% or you weren't training and having you know certain levels of injury you can still train you can still work around it and that can be highly developmentally valid like i think in the instructional we actually talk about how i arrived at some of the passing that i'm going to show like sorry in the in the next instructional like the the one that's out right now is bjj for old fucks guard game we have also already filmed the uh, bjj for old fucks passing game and we talk about how the passing game that I am teaching in that instructional has been influenced by the fact that I did have some injuries that weren't so severe that I couldn't train, but I did have to train around them. And I was forced to focus on certain things that just allowed me to be much more efficient in how I was applying my passing. So in injuries, you know, not that we ever want to get injured. And it is inevitable, though, that we will get injured because it is a combat sport. It's contact training. If you're able to funnel those sorts of constraints into developing an aspect of your game that is less trait dependent, that is less flexibility, explosiveness dependent, I'm a huge advocate of that. Like, don't be injured and just stay off the mats be injured but find a way to work on other things so that you're you know building cumulatively to being the kind of old fuck grappler who has the tools that they can still be effective as we uh, age yeah i'm a big fan of the the selective use of constraints and i think that this is an important thing to bring up because probably a lot of what we talked about right now is going to depress a lot of people so far but i think there's an optimistic side of things too which is innovation often comes from the application of constraints because it isn't until you start putting having constraints put on you that you're forced to really think laterally and look for new ways to do things and i mean there's a ton of people out there who experienced an injury or a setback or some sort of limitation that took away their normal options and having to have that constraint put upon them force them to think and sometimes even and invent and create entirely new tactics and strategies that weren't really known or, or used much before so getting older doesn't have to be like this bad thing of you can't do what you want anymore but it does mean that you're probably going to want to start looking at that as a constraint and looking for opportunities to innovate and optimize yeah one of my other instructors he has taught me some jiu-jitsu, but mostly in the Filipino martial arts. Danny Nasanto said it really well. He said, basically, you have to reinvent your game every 10 years. What works for you in your 20s is going to be different from what works for you in your 30s, in your 40s, in your 50s. You know, and then you think, okay, I finally have this down, and you got to change it all in your 60s. And he's in his 80s, so he's had, and he's been training forever. So he's had been doing this long enough and had to change up his entire game multiple times. So I, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's just an inevitable thing. And the training with constraints absolutely does lead to innovation. I mean, Rob developed his latest style of guard passing 
based off of a finger injury. Yeah, a shoulder injury and, and then a finger injury. But yeah. <laughs> You know, if Rob weren't so decrepit and old, we wouldn't have all of these amazing conceptual innovations from Island Top Team. So, you know, Rob, the, the fact that you're you're such an invalid is, has been so critical, I think, to the development of concepts in the sport of jiu-jitsu. I mean, one of the ways that the, the fuck your jiu-jitsu system of drilling came about is because I had injuries where I would start doing guard retention with my hands tucked into my belt and only using my legs. So yeah, I mean, the, the, I've been using constraints since I was younger. And I mean, I, I think anybody that wants to have a breakthrough in anything and just find a, some form of constraint and you'd be surprised what, what you come up with. And if, and if that doesn't work for you, then, you know, you can always just pay someone to put you in restraints and you'll have a different kind of breakthrough. <laughs> The, well, the, you, Rob, Rob was talking about, that was an amazing fit. That was, how long had he been working on setting that up for? So Rob's talking about constraint-based training, but I think the idea of lowering the cost of failure as well, that's, that's something that Rob's talked about with Fuck Your Jiu-Jitsu as well, that it lowers the cost of training. And I, I said it before, if, if your goal is to climb Mount Everest, right? You want to climb Mount Everest. You don't do all of your training for climbing Mount Everest on Mount Everest. You're, you're going to go and spend a lot of time in the rock climbing gym. Wow, that'd be more on a mountain. You're going to go climb K2. K2's got rock, it's got ice. You're going to go spend a lot of time at the rock climbing gym to get really good at rock climbing. But, you know, when you go to a rock climbing wall, you don't just say, okay, get up this wall however you can. You say, I'm going to get up this wall just using the yellow holds. Then you're going to go up at another time going just using the purple holds, which are harder. I, I, I don't know if the purple holds are harder than the yellow holds. I'm making this up. I don't rock climb. And then you're going to go up the wall just holding onto the brown holds. And what are you doing there? You're doing two things. You're, you're using constraint-based training. You're not climbing all of K2. You're climbing at the gym. You're not climbing up the wall any way you can. You're climbing up just using the yellow holds. But the other half of that is that the, the cost of failure is less because if you fall off that damn wall, you're going to land on the padded floor and very worst case, you might twist an ankle. If while you're climbing on K2, you fall off, uh, if you're very lucky, you might not die. But even that is got a huge, now basically the to get you off from whatever soft ledge of miracle snow you've landed on or off even up from dangling on the rope, is going to be a gigantic production. The cost of failure there is very high. So the gym, you know, the, the fuck you K2 training, which you're doing <laughs> on the rock climbing wall, allows you to get way more reps in. And so I, I think that's a big part of the training methods that you show in the instructional of, okay, you've, you've figured out that you're going to do recumbent guard against a, a kneeling passer. How are you going to get the reps in and how are you going to lower the cost of failure? What are the rules around that and what are the training methods so you can, so you can go and train the techniques that we just showed you in a, in a way to just maximize your reps and maximize the result of the training? And I think that's... Well, you know, that's just the, that's the fuck your jujitsu yeah. system of of developing technique. That uh, yeah, I've, if if I'm known for anything, that's that's one of the things that I'm known for. And politeness. 
politeness yeah yeah actually rob at some point i want to get you back on and just talk about the fuck your jujitsu stuff because it comes up a lot and i get a lot of questions so i think probably that would merit yeah yeah absolutely let's i'd be i'd be happy to do that Awesome. But while I have you guys here, is there anything that you want to talk about that we didn't cover on the topic of being old and decrepit? Anything that we missed that is uh, worth mentioning here? I mean, I'm pretty upset that I didn't use Stefan's uh, brown holds to make a brown hole joke. But other than that, I think we're good. <laughs> well, now you did. You know, you manifested into the world the change that you wanted to see. So there we go. We did it. <laughs> Stefan, how about you? I, I just want to reiterate that I, I think that fighting father time is a, is a good activity and that people who are continuing to train in their 40s, continuing to train in their 50s, continuing to train in their 60s, so long as they're doing it safely and not destroying their body in the process, it's a really good thing. You're beginning to see this not destroying your body in the process in, in other sports, in other combat sports as well. Rob was mentioning this isn't a thing in hockey practice, right? You don't put your teammate through the bloody glass with a hip check in in training but even in mma right mma used to be all your training used to be full bore and now there's a whole lot of mma trainers who re or tra fighters who are training with really quite minimal head contact because they the sport is beginning to realize the importance of cte so although those guys are all young they're doing something to train for longevity so I think we are beginning to see a change come to the combat arts where especially the combat arts that are competitive components. We're not talking about, you know, deadly combat arts that don't have any sparring, but perhaps combat arts and arts with sparring are synonymous. I think we are seeing a change come into the arts that have sparring, a change coming into the combat arts that, that recognize that, you know, longevity in the sport is important and that we training methods have to change and to some extent that the techniques have to be more tailored to the specific person that you know the the days of teaching everybody you know the barambolo from de la Hiva guard are coming to a close amazing yeah i mean i think as the sport grows as more money comes into the sport more expertise like actual expertise real experts will come into the sport yeah like you know it, it, it's funny again like go for it rob let let it get let it rip man i know you want to do it recent history has shown <laughs> us that a brazilian jiu-jitsu community that claims to value expertise does no such thing in the rest of their life they will totally take the high road on expertise when it comes to anything about fighting i mean yeah how many times has joe rogan insulted a guest for not knowing any dude you just have no idea you get in the ring with a professional fighter you get in the ring with me i'm going to kill you that's because i know jujitsu i am better than you at this because i'm the expert essentially but i'm also an expert at vaccines actually which is kind of weird <laughs> But anyway, my point is that th there's a resistance in the jiu-jitsu community to expertise, which is why, to some degree, the training methods are so antiquated. And as people accept more expert, like outside expertise, expertise on conditioning and physiology and constraints-based learning and pedagogy and all that kind of stuff and sports science, as that gets more and more accepted by our community, we will adopt better training methods. We will adopt safer training methods. I'm on record as one of the limitations of our, you know, our world is, our, you know, the jujitsu world, I should say, is that most of the people running gyms are 
business owners who cater to hobbyists and they have no incentive to provide the best product. They have an incentive to do the best marketing. And I think we are all victims in the jujitsu community of that bias, which is, you know, if, if there was more incentive, if, if every coach in the jujitsu world was just coaching, you know, Olympic caliber athletes, I think things would look very, very different. If you actually had to rely on, you know, the science about sports, about how to teach people sports, about how to do sports, we would have a very different uh, landscape uh, and, and jujitsu classes would look very different, but that's not what we have. So it's going to take longer. But it's, you know, I think it's inevitable that it will move in that direction. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the two of you being leaders in this space and helping to drive things in that direction. Now, if there is one benefit to being an old fuck is that you're more likely to have disposable income. So, Stefan, if people want to buy this instructional, where do they go to get it? Grapplearts.com slash old guard or old. <laughs> That's a brilliant name. And, uh. <laughs> It's also available on the GrappleArts BGJ Master app, which you can search for in the Android store or in the Play store. Yeah, got it on DVD, got it on streaming, got it on the app. You can pretty much find it anywhere. Awesome. And I will put a link to that in the show notes. So if anyone is interested, give it a click, check it out. As always, Rob and Stefan make amazing stuff, so I definitely recommend it. But thank you so much to the two of you for, for joining. I really appreciated this awesome chat. Anything else you guys want to plug or say before we tie this up? Thank you so much, Steve. I'll give you my ironic us and I'll be out. No, yeah. Thank you, Steve. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks a lot, guys. And of course, to everyone who listens here, thanks to you as well. We'll talk to you next week. Bye.